ironically, I would say that is the province of a tall woman. <laughs> it's not for nothing. You fucking asshole brought it back to high. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Lainey. I am the editor of LaineyGossip.com, a talk show host in Canada and also an entertainment reporter. And I am currently rediscovering the melancholy beauty of Sarah McLaughlin's fumbling towards ecstasy. I'm Duanna Taha. I am a television writer and producer, and I had no idea it was 1997 up in here, but that seems appropriate based on this week's topic. On this week's episode, we get into Tracy Ellis Ross, her late bloom in one area of her life. Which of the many elements of her career may actually have been a bit of a genetic gift. We get into it and how it relates to Margot Robbie. And Julia Roberts. Sure, way to give it away there. And then Duanna pulls out her pom-poms for an emerging star. There is nothing like a hometown girl, especially if that girl is the new breakout star of Never Have I Ever on Netflix. Maitreyi Ramakrishnan is from Mississauga, Ontario, which I can spell, M-I-S-S-I-S-S-A-U-G-A, and she is making us proud. We will get into exactly how and why. This is Show Your Work. So there's something I don't know about you. Really? I know at this point, but, uh, but I was thinking, and I don't think I, I can place down a verdict. Were okay. you a mixtape person? As in, I'm not talking about like cool rappers. I'm talking about old school recording off the radio, giving it to somebody kind of mixtape. I definitely recorded off the radio. Uh-huh. I don't know that I gave it to anybody. Uh-huh. I know I've received but yeah. I don't know that I gave out a mixtape. I received a lot myself. And uh, there are definitely people who are makers. Um, and I'm not a huge, I was not a huge mixtape maker or playlist maker. Uh, but I think that's about to change. Because uh, I've taken a, a leaf out of your book. Uh, and I was saving things for when you need a treat, when you need a pick me up, you know? Right. And even though it's not super, super new, uh, I had been saving the carpool karaoke episode with the cast of Good Girls. So Greta, Christina Hendricks, and Mae Whitman, uh, which they released, I think, in mid-February. And it was so amazing 
Um, it was just the three of them. And it's so clear that they deeply love and adore one another. Uh, and they're having a blast and singing all these songs. And I realized that's my number one wish for when we get out of here. I'm going to load us up in a car <laughs> like, like we're all 17. And I want to drive around with all the windows open, singing at the top of our lungs, like to songs that we adore. Yes, please. Yes, please. You know what I mean? I, like, I know what you mean. Uh, and so because they were my inspiration, mm -hmm. uh, one song that I'm going to pull from them is uh, Alone. You like know, like Heart? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alone, can you now? I always got by on my own. Somewhere, yes, it's freaking out about the audio. Until I met yeah. you. Yeah. That one. But then we're going to go into like Rihanna Umbrella. We're going to rise and fall. The whole thing. You know what I mean? You know, Rihanna Umbrella is a song for our friend group. Like there was one summer where we were all hanging out at this particular friend's place. Member, Apartment. Yeah. And that was that the song of the summer that summer. And we were... That always reminds me of you and Sasha and uh, Lara and Amy. Like that, to me, if we, yeah, if we had a theme song, it would be Umbrella. Me too. And I don't know exactly why, because I feel the exact same way, but we played lots of songs that summer and we oh, danced sure. around and sang to tons of them. But that's the one that when I think back, I have the image of. Yeah. Uh, so that definitely is going on the playlist, but that is my... Like, that's my wish list. That's my number one thing as soon as we get out of here uh -huh. is driving around in a car, belting at the top of our lungs and just laughing and, and being ridiculous. It's so true about music and cars. I associate like so many times in, well, not just youth, like in life where if I'm alone in a car, there's a certain kind of song that gets me in a certain kind of mood. Uh, given the the light in the day or the time of day. I mean, I have songs that I listened to when I was dealing with a breakup and all I could do was jump in the car at like one o'clock in the morning and drive around aimlessly in the city and listen to certain music. And I have songs that I listen to, you know, driving around, coming home from something really late, but feeling the opposite, like feeling a bit euphoric. I, I think it's really interesting that you're bringing this up. Um, the I think the power of music, especially for me at this time, like, of course, obviously we don't have it the worst, but it's been really stressful and there's been a lot of anxiety and, you know, there's been a lot of pain and I've been connecting to music in a way that I'm, I haven't connected to music in a long time. And music has been like, I, Reading is not at the top of my list right now, and it usually is. And watching things and binging things isn't at the top of my list either. It's music. Like whenever I can, I'm just turning music on and and filling my 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 mind with music. Yeah, I think partly it's probably because of, you know, reading is something you do when you're alone and when you have the opportunity to be alone and you sort of relish that. And when all we have is alone, it's like, let me feel like there are other people around, you know? Yeah. But I also really love those songs. And this is why this carpool karaoke really stuck out to me. Those ones where you don't pre-agree that you're going to sing 
when it comes on. It's just that if you're in the car with your friends and it comes on, all of a sudden you drop whatever the hell you were talking about beforehand and you just belt it out for three minutes, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, I think everybody thinks about that scene in reality bites when they start to sing tempted, you know, when they're driving. Right. Yeah. Um, but there's a million others. And, uh, so that is my number one wish. I will accept submissions to the playlist, but I'm not guaranteeing (laughs) that they get on the list. I love that. So if you're listening, um, send us a list, a playlist of, of post lockdown, get in the car with your homies and crank it up loud on a joyride. Uh, let yeah. us know what you think should be on our list and what's going to be on your list. We'd love to know. I mean, this is leading straight to an episode shot in the car where we just <laughs> podcast between tracks. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, I, I can't came wait. To, I came to see you the other day in a socially distanced visit and um, it was hard like to maintain this distance from each other. It was like, we were, you know, we were, um, we were trying to stop ourselves from inching closer and closer together. So it'll be really nice to sort of be in a car, like in a contained space, literally trapped together. Yeah. You're just jammed in and <laughs> bellowing. <laughs> and this is for me. Like my whole shit is get away from me. I hate people. Don't touch me. I know you, you have a whole new cuddly leaf. Uh, it's, I got to listen well, to what's let, your drama. Let's and not you and Sasha are hugging. That's a <laughs> metaphorically speaking. That's, that's a stretch. Um, uh, oh, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> Shall we? Yeah, let's go. So, uh, I pitched this to you. It's a new interview with Tracy Ellis Ross with the guardian. And, uh, she did an interview with Arwa Madawi I don't know specifically why this interview was set up. I wonder if it's because of the film that was slated to be released this month called The High Note. Um, Tracy Ellis Ross has the leading role. Dakota Johnson, I guess, I don't know if it's a two-hander with Dakota Johnson. Um, I I guess she's a, uh, yeah, she's sort of a a second in command. Uh, I don't know what the billing is on the show, on the, but yeah. But it's quite clear that Tracy plays the lead in in this film, uh, The High Note. She is um, a musician, an entertainer who has been kind of singing the same music over and over again. And then Dakota Johnson's character suggests that she um, suggests new music to her. And then I guess the story like goes from there and she sings herself in this film. I think there are six original songs that she performs so I, I suppose it would have been um, in support of that film, again, which was due out now, but now it's been, uh, like been postponed and we don't know what the release date will be. Right. And yeah, that was my assumption was this was lined up months ago that they would talk to Tracy Ellis Ross this week. Now she's not overtly plugging the film per se. So let's do a profile. And to be honest, I tend to prefer those pieces. Mm-hmm. You can always kind of tell when somebody is profiled who doesn't have something to promote or who maybe isn't the biggest, biggest name on everybody's lips that week, that month. And you go, oh, this is just because the writer wanted to talk to this person, wanted to see if they could 
get something new out. And I always kind of like those the best. And this one didn't disappoint. Oh, I mean, I think we all like those the best. And I, I think when it's done well, it's going to always be a really great promotional tool for whatever it is that needs to be promoted. But if you have, I don't know, 15 minutes and time for eight questions, I don't know that you need all eight questions to be about the thing that they're trying to promote. I just did an interview last week and um, the the people that I was interviewing were promoting a project. And before the interview, we were reminded, like I swear, a dozen times by the publicists, keep the questions to the project, keep the questions to the project. And it, it takes life away from a conversation. And if you're on the other side of that, like if you are in marketing and publicity, I feel like you, you should know better. And I don't know where the direction is coming from. Oftentimes, sure, it's coming from these celebrities or the actors or the musicians, personal publicists, but I think they too are, have lost sense of, of what the job is. Well, you know, celebrities often will say uh, that they themselves do not say to outlets or to publicists, I don't want to talk about my relationship or whatever. I'm sure Jennifer uh, Aniston has inevitably promoted a movie right after a big public breakup. And I'm sure she's like, can we not have people asking me about who John Mayer is fucking now or whatever it right. is. But um, in general, they say that they're not the ones pushing that. And I kind of believe it because I think that the unit publicists, i.e. people who are working for a given film as opposed to the celebrities, I think it's more the opposite, that they've gotten burned when uh, somebody has asked a question and didn't like it. You know, at the end of the day, somebody says, oh, there were so many people asking me about so-and-so who I starred in a movie with last year or something. Mm -hmm. Then the unit publicist gets balled out and you know, doubles down the next time. It's because of having gotten burned, I suppose. Right. But I agree with you that it absolutely makes it A, airless, and B, it shoots you in the foot because then if all eight questions are about the project, then they become boring and repetitive, and then your talent is exhausted and bored by the end of the day. Yeah. So where Tracy Ellis Ross is concerned, as you point out, it's like a meandering conversation as most conversations are, right? I mean, when you talk to a friend or when you talk to anybody, you you don't follow a roadmap. There's no agenda um, where you hit one, two, and three, and four, and five in chronological order and succession. You may hit all those things, but the way that you get there is is quite, uh, how do you say the word, circuitous? Circuitous. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And in turn, I mean, everybody involved knows that the reporter has a job to do. So you and I have a cottage industry anyway of shouting people out. Yeah. But that's often a, a writing skill of its own, right? To then frame the interview with quotes and not quotes, background and whatever that make it seem like a conversation with a friend instead of a linear yeah. A to Z of uh, here's where my questions are flowing from this place to right. that place kind of thing. That said, I mean, we're operating from the position of we love her anyway. 
I don't know if I love her as much as I admire her. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I I like her every time she appears somewhere, but I don't follow her every move. And that almost made this more exciting for me. Because yeah. it's not like she's somebody who's falling back on, you know, real catchphrases or a particular persona. It felt very much like she was a person talking, which I appreciated. And the way that I noticed that the most is that she kind of off the top admits to how disappointed she is that she's not out promoting this movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, there's a lot of, you know, correct sentiment going around about if you are not on the front lines in the pandemic, if you are at home with enough to eat and enough money that you should be grateful and not complaining. And you absolutely should be grateful. But I think it is worth acknowledging that like there are disappointments for everybody from like maybe people were going to have a big birthday bash this year to stuff like this where, yeah, we're not going to promote this film now and who knows when it'll come out to uh, you know, a million other things. And it just felt so honest and real to be like, yeah, I'm super famous Tracy Ellis Ross and I have all this going for me. And I'm also just goddamn bummed about this. Yeah. It's very human. It's very human. And it's also relative. Like, you know, what's bummy for her is is to be the star, the number one on the call sheet on a feature film at the age mm-hmm. of 47, a woman of color in this business and in this film in particular, for the first time, as she said, at 47 years old, quote, to go into the studio and start singing and discover that I actually had a voice that could work, it was life-changing for me. And that's on pause now, right? To be able to finally show that and to be proud of the work. Yeah, for sure. I Yeah, it's all on pause. It's It's big moments. And yeah, that people continue to have big moments and small moments that They'll come around again. Things will happen again. But it's okay to be like, yeah, and they got trampled and it kind of sucked. I like that. I like that you're bringing this up, that it's okay. You know, you can show your work, but also show it by talking about your disappointment. And I would venture, I'm so far from being somebody in the medical field or on the front line, I would never uh, want to speak to them. And I'm sure that they are struggling to stay above water and everything else right now. And I know that's indescribably hard, but I'm sure that on some level, in addition to all of that, they're also bummed that those tickets they were looking forward to, that that act is not coming through town or that, you know, they weren't going to take that trip in May or whatever. They're also dealing as individual human beings, as well as being hugely influential and stressed out parts of what's keeping our world going. Yeah. There's both. I agree. I agree. And you're right. And when it comes from Tracy, it it just, it fits into that whole, as you said, like you admire her because over the last few years, as we've gotten to know her through her various projects, but you know, um, through Blackish, and she's a really she's an accomplished host. I love watching her host. She's very mm-hmm. good at it, yeah. right? So the hosting, um, there's a, the fashion component. She has a very you know a healthy social media presence. Through all of that, that that expression of disappointment fits into to the 
oh, I mean, we've learned to hate this word now, but the authenticity that she's she has put out there. Yeah, maybe a different way to to say that is she presents as a full circle human being. Which is especially interesting because this she is the daughter of one of the most famous entertainers of all time. And really, that is sort of the crux of, of the revelations that she gives up in this interview, right? Yeah, for sure. Like, how are you shaped by being the daughter of Diana Ross to end up as a completely separate, like that is the least interesting thing about her now. That her mother was an incredibly famous singer. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Well, look, you know I love this stuff about like cause and effect and family influence and all that kind of thing. And it's kind of what this interview becomes about. But I think it's not an accident that although she was that although she's beautiful and Diana Ross is and was beautiful, although she modeled and as you say, she has fashion interests and concerns and that kind of thing. She, that's never been her persona, right? It's always been about, I'm going to lean in a totally different direction. I'm going to go comedy. I'm not going to be about being uh, a photocopy of an icon. Does that make sense? Yep. Like, I think about somebody like, uh, oh, I don't know, Cindy Crawford's daughter or um, even even Reese Witherspoon's daughter. Not that I know what Reese Witherspoon's daughter has in store for her own life. But there's this inference of being just like your mom all over again. And I think part of the reason that Tracy Ellis Ross is compelling in her own right is because she was like, no, I have a mom like many people have a mom. But it's not going to be about uh, reinterpreting her life to to fit my own. She went her own way. She did go her own way. And I, I, at the risk of this being controversial, I wonder whether or not it worked for her that she emerged as a completely separate identity from Diana Ross because although she's always been working and has always had a career, mm-hmm. there wasn't a heavy spotlight on her career through those 20, like 20 something and 30 something years of her life. She's 47. And let's say that um, for, yeah, the last five to seven years is when she's been like a list, right? You know, invited to everything. Um, uh, talked about headlines, um, given opportunity. So post 40, but through her twenties and thirties, even though at the time she would have wanted more of a spotlight on her work, she does go into the fact that her work was on a show like, for example, Girlfriends. Right. Well, Girlfriends is kind of known as being one of the great uh, injustices of the entertainment industry, Mm -hmm. right? Because it was, it ran for eight seasons. It was a flagship show. It was a huge moneymaker, uh, on BET, but it wasn't seen as a mainstream show. That's right. And so nobody was talking about it. Like it was, uh, it ran 
from 2000 to 2008. Like, it's not like it happened before we cared about TV. You know what I mean? It was happening. Um, but nobody cared. And so that has that dual edge of nobody cared. So there was no press. But... Uh, or the, the, the wrong... Like, the I put wrong in quotations. The, pe- the people who matter didn't care. Sorry, I mean nobody in the media who was doing uh, profiles of, you know, actors and that kind of thing. Nobody who would make her a celebrity name, per se, cared. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, with all the inherent issues with uh, who was writing the media and who was uh, doing film and TV criticism, inherent in that, right? Yeah. But, of course, it also means... Uh, Tracy Ellis Ross was in 172 episodes of that show. It means she got to work out her shit without everybody watching. Yeah. She didn't make a huge amount of mistakes like out in public. She was sort of learning as she as she went. And I mean, she did a lot of stuff before then. That wasn't her first job. But uh, she was pretty green when she got that role, you know, yeah. so... It it has that double-edged sword of, on the one hand, nobody was paying attention. On the other hand, it allows her to appear fully formed mm-hmm. as, hi, I'm Tracy Ellis Ross. I'm 40, and suddenly you care all about me because I look like the whole package. That's right. And so and you took that word right out of my mouth. I was going to say double-edged sword, right? Because in theory, that's what we want. Like, it shouldn't happen that a show like Girlfriends that ran for, as you said, eight seasons, and we all know you don't run for eight seasons. Like there's no world in which a show is on for eight seasons and it isn't not just a success, but like a smash success. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of seasons. Um, you know, people are lucky if they get a pilot picked up, right? So Absolutely. So eight seasons and yet the mainstream translation, white media didn't pick up on it. So what we're dealing with is that double-edged sort of, in a better world, that's the kind of show that is, you know, being talked about in the way that other shows, Sex and the City, et cetera, this is all like, you know, the Sex and the City thing is always invoked when Girlfriends comes up, yes? And Friends and all those sort of, uh, you know, people in an apartment shows, if you will. So there's no, in a, in a better world, the cast of Girlfriends would have been on magazines. They would have been on red carpets. They would have been a factor at award shows. So there is an injustice at play here. And yet when we're talking about the big picture of Tracy Ellis Ross's career and, you know, the show your work aspect of how she, it came to be that right now she is so great at showing her work, it, part of it has to do with, yeah, the double-edged sword on the other side is that she kind of was able to George Clooney it. And I say George Clooney it because he's the one who has always said that, you know, he didn't become famous until he was in his mid-30s. But had he become famous when he was, what, whatever, 22, it would have been such a fuck up. He he wouldn't have the career he has now. He would have been an asshole. Like, that's what we're getting at, right? Um, if we accept that we're all kind of assholes in our 20s, uh, she got to work out her shit without everybody watching and got to hone her craft. Um, I think the other side of it, too, is uh, another sort of work uh, aphorism that 
I I tend to think about, and it's hard to remember, but it's that thing of, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? It's about, okay, so you didn't get everything you wanted the first time out or the fifth time out. That's okay. Are you done? You're not done. You don't know when things are coming. You don't know which things are going to hit. Yeah. Uh, You know, there's a quote in this piece that says, then in 2014, everything started to happen. Yeah. Uh, and she was a working actor for 20 years at that point. Yep. Um, but by no means a household name, you know. Uh, so then after 20 years to be like, then things started to happen. Then things picked up. It's like uh, that's sort of the gorgeous thing about the shape of a career is going. Uh, you don't know when those things are going to happen. And you have to care enough about the work and about the day to day of what you're doing that you're not going to give up if that doesn't show up in say year six or year nine or whatever. And you know what? Another thing that just struck me is cause like you, you know, we've been throwing around names like Jennifer Aniston and shows like friends and sex, sex in the city and the idea of celebrity and all the components that fit into celebrity imagery and like it or not romance and relationships is part of that. And it certainly has been. Yeah. Yeah. And for Tracy Ellis Ross, she gets into that a little bit in this interview where she's like, I'm single. I don't want kids, haven't had kids, whatever. But there are men in her life. And she coyly talks about, um, you know, having a romantic life. It's not like she lives like a monk. And yet, even though it's pretty, uh, pretty widely acknowledged in the media that she is single, that she dates from time to time. It's not a fixation where she's concerned. The way it may have been if the spotlight was on her in her 20s, when she was on, as you say, one of those apartment shows. And part of those apartment shows is about your love life, right? And who are you dating and what like the hijinks of your romantic life fictionally as as compared to um, in reality, factually. And so because in, in, in that area of her life, there hasn't been a spotlight now that she is an A-lister, you know, we're not up in her face about who she's dating, who she's booty calling, who she, you know, may be dealing with. It's really an interesting, it's an, an interesting advantage that she has, is, is leaning into right now. Well, you know, I think two things about that. Like, number one, yes, I agree. Because she wasn't uh, gossip fodder in the pages 20 years ago, we weren't concerned about who she was dating. Uh, Then that's not part of the conversation now, right? Which is fine. But here's the other thing. Let's be honest. Nobody really cares if Tracy Ellis Ross or Emma Watson or, I don't know, who else, uh, Anna DeArmas is dating like a local dentist, right? (laughs) Like nobody really gives a shit. They're like, oh yeah, and partner, if they even bother to find out the name. Um, It's also that when you're young and in LA and running around, often the other people that you meet on your schedule and on your sort of like in your circles and wavelengths are other performers or musicians or whatever, right? that's when it becomes really attractive. And uh, that's when it becomes really attractive to 
gossip columns and magazines and things. That's mm-hmm. what I mean. That's when it becomes part of the celebrity profile. Whereas, uh, you know, if you're married to some real estate agent, everybody's like, eh. Uh, <laughs> and then if you get to be Tracy Ellis Ross's age, I don't think you give a shit about whether somebody is in the business, which they're still more likely to be uh, than not in LA and in the circles that you meet. But for all we know, she does, you know, she does have one dentist boyfriend and one who's a lighting guy and one whatever, but it becomes about like the men who are good for you, Mm -hmm. not about what kind of a picture you make for a magazine, right? Right. You look like you're holding in a laugh at me right now. No, I'm not holding in a laugh at all. I'm just really enjoying like how, how, how you got really granular in describing what possible boyfriend's jobs would be. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just think it's, uh, you know, we've seen it a million times, right? Like it's news if somebody dates a singer, another actor, a co-star, like the meter goes way up. If it's a student, everybody's sort of like, oh, that might be cute for a minute. Then they lose interest. Yeah. And God forbid it's like, the new hot celebrity, uh, I don't know, give me a name. Emma uh, Roberts is dating her accountant. You're like, eh. <laughs> no, it, nobody cares. Uh, and it makes the story go away. You know what I thought of too? Um, reading this piece and seeing the photos. I mean, she's gorgeous. She's beautiful. Like this, her clothing, her outfits. Uh, I mean, all of it is is like, I'm is porn for me. But I also thought about, because they have a shot in this article of a, a girlfriend's poster, and I don't know what season it is from, and then current photos of her. And I put her in the same category that you have always used to describe Julia Roberts and Margot Robbie, where those two women arrived on the scene as women, Mm -hmm. like they were never girlish. And I feel like it's the same for Tracy Ellis Ross, where I think that she also arrived on the scene, even in like during Girlfriends when she was in her early 20s and then progressed to her late 20s, because again, the show is on for eight seasons. Um, She was never girly. She was always a woman. And one of the advantages of being of that type, the the Tracy's and the Julia's and the Margo's is that I think that it, it almost encases you in Amber. Like Tracy looks to me in 2020, the way she did in 2000. And in much the same way, like Julia hasn't changed much. The hair, the, those legs, the body, the lips, like she she really doesn't she hasn't transformed the way that so many other stars have and i'm i wonder whether or not that'll be the same for margot robbie is this making sense to you at all uh yes it is uh i'm just googling because i need to see if there's something that uh supports my supports my point here um i would say two things i'd say on the one hand uh that's absolutely true but also, ironically, I would say that is the province of a tall woman. <laughs> it's not for nothing. You fucking asshole brought it back to height. 
a tall woman not only has to figure out what works on her, and as I've said, tall is not cute. That little girly thing doesn't work the same way on tall people as it does on wee tinies. It also means that you you realize early on, like sort of that you can embrace some styles that maybe theoretically seem like they're for um, um, an older woman and they can look young on the right person. That's half of the point of pretty woman is that everything she wore might have looked stayed on, uh, on somebody else, but then she wears them and you're like, Oh no, actually that's, that's real cute. And I think that's also the case for Tracy Ellis Ross. It's a lot of like long, long pants and tailoring and that kind of thing. Margot Robbie is apparently five feet, six inches. Uh, that does not necessarily cross my my barrier as tall. But, uh, uh, you know, I can see where the same thing might apply. It crosses my barrier as tall. I just want to make that clear. Yeah, but five foot six anybody and taller than you tall to me. Make, oh, thank taller you. Taller than you, but it's not a tall woman. Um, but, of course, the other side. I'm not joking. But the other side of that is I think it goes back to our thing that we were saying about uh, not being Diana Ross's daughter, right? Yeah. If you are determined, she doesn't say in so many words what we've heard other people say, which is I wasn't going to be known as just so-and-so's daughter. She doesn't quite say those words, right? But if you are going to come out and not be known as somebody's daughter, um, you need to not look like a daughter. Does that make sense? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You need to not look like somebody's little girl, um, and you need to arrive on a set to a to a casting call, whatever, looking like your own person who is doing it for your own reasons, and not because you're chasing some of mom and dad's, uh, you know amazing drugs that that we saw that they you know that you wanted a piece of that life yeah. kind of thing you have to be seen as doing it for your own reasons I think and then you don't have and to run could- from it because a lot of people who are in the position of um Tracy Ellis Ross have to run from it like no I don't want to talk to my mom and my dad I, I want to have my own identity I'm not them oh my god and she's never been that either you know yeah, and you know a lot of those names have come up even in this conversation, right? Um, it, Jennifer Aniston's father was not famous enough to get those questions, but remember how everybody used to ask her about Telly Savalas in every interview, right? Yes. Well, who's uh, her godfather or something, right? Her godfather, yeah, yeah, uh, or Emma Roberts, or you know the the uh, Ava Phillippes and whomever else is of the world. There's there's that always inherent in the conversation, right? Well, what do you think your mom would say, Kaya Gerber, about this pose? Oh, she did one just like it when she was 19, like that thing over and over again. Yeah, the more you can avoid that, the better. I wonder, that just occurred to me, that is where that is where Tracy Ellis Ross and Dakota Johnson, her co-star in The High Note, intersect because, of course, they would be able to relate to each other a little bit on that level, Dakota being the daughter of Don Johnson and Melanie Griffith. And if you want an equivalent of what you're saying about undaughtering yourself, really Dakota Johnson exploded onto the scene. I mean, she had been working before this project, but what 
sort of elevated her to um, close to being a household name would be the Fifty Shades of Grey series in which that is quite undaughterly. (laughs) Yeah. Well, but that's exactly right. You know, that's a real calculated move. And she didn't have a lot of sort of what I would call training wheels roles, right? Um, she was, uh, in, uh, a few things, uh, she was in crazy in Alabama, uh, apparently, um, when she was 10 with her mom, but, uh, but they didn't really want her to do it. And, uh, yeah, she sort of, uh, she had a few roles in the social network in 21 jump street and things that people didn't necessarily need to put her in, you know, nobody was doing a favor by giving her, uh, three lines in, in 21 jump street or in the five-year engagement or whatever. Maybe they were, who do we know? But you're right. When she came out as playing Anastasia in the 50 shades movies, it's like, no, I'm doing this. I'm choosing this. And you wouldn't do it if you were just like, I want to be just like mom. Cause there's a million other ways to do that. <clears throat> Kate Hudson. <clears throat> <laughs> However, there is one other place where the comparisons to mom uh, are front and center or notably not front and center. And that was the other thing I loved about this article. So as you say, she plays a singer. She sings six original songs in this film. And she lets on that she basically never, ever, ever sang. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Like in a 30 year career, she never sang. She had a temper tantrum in high school because everybody had to sing in some production or other. In terms of separating yourself from your famous parent, that was a place that she would never go. And yes. so she talks about how doing this film, she was so nervous about singing and There's no mention of because I was going to be compared to my mother, but I really found myself wondering which it was because as anybody who's listened to only this one episode, if no other episodes of this podcast can tell, I love singing. I think it's as close to meditation as I get. Um, And I think everybody should do it. I think everybody should want to do it. I think it's really cleansing and wonderful. And so I wonder how much of what she's saying is holding herself back from singing because she would be compared to her mother Mm -hmm. or uh, the very natural and normal uh, fear of singing in public because that's a known fear that people have. I think it's the former. Or a combination of, right? If I sing, I'll just be seen as Diana Ross's daughter. And lesser than? Right. Like, I mean, the first informs the latter. So it's a combination of two, of the two, as you said. But if, it, if it's chicken or the egg scenario, I would say uh, the, the thing that came first is my mother is one of the greatest vocalists of all time. And um, that is just not what I want to explore. And I think that that accounts for the reaction that is described um, – in the article of when she finally does sing and there's a clip that's played and she's with Oprah and of course, in a, you know, a devastatingly on the nose Oprah moment, everybody cries after the clip is played. Right. right. <laughs> um, and 
um, and it's it's very relatable and understandable to think that at 47, she now has like things that are padding up who Tracy is before she was able to be like, okay, yeah, I'll I'll do the singing thing. Yeah, it's you know it is uh, Tracy Ellis Ross is like Blue Ivy Carter, uh, forty years in advance, um, because uh, nobody can be Diana Ross again, nobody can be Beyonce again. So you wouldn't want to even try, right? That's right. And I understand that career wise, I understand that uh, comparison wise, but it it breaks my heart, but also makes me love the article to think that she might have just denied herself singing for singing's sake until now. Mm-hmm. Um, or she just so, did it in like in the most private way possible. Exactly. Like uh, not even in the shower, if there was a chance anybody else could hear that kind of yeah. thing. And that may uh, have been why the the Oprah incident was was that like, I'm talking about not even close friends, not even a lover, literally, and not even her mother and not siblings. Literally the only time she sang was when she was like profoundly alone. And that may have been the first time that anyone, anyone in the world heard heard her sing. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I think in talking about how Tracy Ellis Ross is this fully formed adult person, I don't think she could have done this role if not just oh if she couldn't sing but if she couldn't feel like she was doing the singing for its own part you know what I mean like for its own sake not just as a novelty of here Tracy Ellis Ross sing for the first time I'm sure she would have uh chosen not to do it if it felt like that uh and so it that's what comes back to our first point which is why I think it becomes doubly upsetting to not have this film released and to not sort of be like, look, I've become this other person who can be comfortable with this part of my personality. Uh, But it definitely, it read in the piece, and you guys tell us what you think, as a really personal decision that I, I got quite, like, emotionally proud of her for more than a, well, I'm not going to be compared to my mom anymore. It didn't have that sort of teenage distancey feel that you were talking about. I agree. I can't wait to see this movie now. And see, that's how you do your job without having to ask 18 questions about the same thing. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So I really like, and I I don't know that we consciously intended this to be, but I, I, I really like how we are linking um, these two people on this episode, Tracy Ellis Ross and um, a new star on the rise in a show that a lot of people are talking about, one of those Netflix shows that really just picks up momentum and people are loving 
with like a week delay. I mean, a lot of people watch the moment it dropped and then like people get into it the week, a week later, and there's going to be a phase two of popularity and a phase three of popularity. I predict for this show, which is never have I ever, um, it's Mindy Kaling's show and its star is a breakout. Her name is Maitreyi Ramakrishnan. Um, and I really like this sort of arc that we're creating between Maitreyi and Tracy, but Duanna, you've you've watched the show, yes? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I gobbled it down. Um, and you once told me a term that I was. You once accused me of being something, and I didn't even know this term existed. <laughs> uh, you once called me a homer, mm-hmm. meaning somebody who is uh, devoted to uh, their hometown mm-hmm. or people or teams or whatever who are yes. from my hometown. Yes. 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 Um. So I'm not going to lie. I wanted to watch this show first and foremost because the first legend that comes out of this show is that Mindy Kaling put out a uh, a blanket open call for South Asian Desi women of from anywhere with any level of experience and. The person who is cast as Davy, the 15-year-old lead in the show, is Maitreyi. She is from Mississauga, Ontario. That's a suburb of Toronto. Yep. And it is her very, very, very first Mm -hmm. job ever. And she killed it. Yes. Like, uh, you know, let's be real here. People say, oh, the breakout star of whatever whenever there's anything new to promote, right? Everybody says this for any new up-and-comer. That's kind of the phrasing that's used, right? Yes. But this is not that. This is somebody who not only has, like, star power coming off her in waves, but who very clearly didn't break a sweat. And it's so exciting. (sighs) Very clearly didn't break a sweat is, I mean, can you imagine you beat out, I don't know how many people. 15,000. That's exactly how many. A Mindy Kaling project. And as you said, killed it and didn't break a sweat. What the fuck? It's, it's unbelievable. Uh, You know, another word that we often use for people who are coming up is like, green right oh so and so was really green they were new they didn't know yet she's not green which is impossible because she must technically be green she must have had times when she didn't hit her mark or didn't know how to do a line reading or something but there's no evidence of that I was fully ready I will admit to you know like the show and like the girl and then give her a pass if there were some awkward moments or be like, oh, she's a first timer or whatever. I can even remember like there are some of those in easy A, you know, with with Emma Stone, a, a huge star. And maybe it's excellent editing. Maybe she had excellent help with the directors and the producers on set, but she does not break a sweat. She owns every frame of this show and she's in just about every frame. Okay, Homer. So, <laughs> uh, well, uh, sorry, sorry, 
But I mean, that's worth noting. And it's worth noting that, yeah, if you beat out 15,000 other people, because that was the narrative before any of us ever saw this show, right? Yeah. If you beat out 15,000 other people, and if it is your very first job, as she has been telling everybody, uh, then you better be decent. Like, you better have sort of some sort of chops to back up that story. And yeah, it's there in spades. Well, there's two ways of reacting to it. There's only two ways. It's either you, uh, as you said, uh, like didn't break, you don't break a sweat because you have beat up 15,000 other people, or you're like, fuck, I I beat up 15,000 people. Wow. Now the expectations are this high and I better be worthy of like the confidence of uh, uh, like uh, of this headline that people are putting out there of me beating out 15,000 people. I think I would be this like number two. I would fucking choke. Not to like go back to sports analogies for the second. No, I, I get it. I do. <laughs> um, but it's, uh, you know, call it what you want. Call it like right place, right time or or not caring that much or dumb luck. But uh but yeah, there's no sign of choking or sweating or she seems to be taking it all in stride. And I also wonder if there's also the benefit of the pandemic. Call me crazy. Yeah. But all of the press that my trade has been doing, uh, she has done from uh, her home in Mississauga. Ah, yeah. There is one in-person interview that I've seen where she was doing it with CBC, uh, the Canadian national broadcaster, very clearly in the drama room at her old high school, Mm -hmm. which, you know, was where she'd done most of her acting until this. Uh, And there's one photo shoot, I think, that came out of LA. But for the most part, she maybe doesn't have the chance to get too fussed about the press that she's doing uh, because she's sitting in her parents' living room. That doesn't speak to how well she did on set, which clearly was very well. Um, But I wonder if that's part of not feeling too extra or not filling your speech with, I'm so grateful and I'm so happy. Not that those aren't great to hear, but like we get it. Of course, everybody who is has an opportunity is grateful and happy. It's sort of very, very chill. And you get the impression that she's going to hang up with Variety or or the New York Times or whoever and go back to playing video games. Uh, You know, that's a great point that, you know, she's doing her first press tour. And I, I, I get it. Like if you're 18 Maybe this is un- an unfair thing to say, be- an unfair assumption to make. But when you're 18 and you are the lead in a show like this by Mindy Kaling, ordinarily you'd be, I don't know, in New York and you'd also be in L.A. and you'd be on Good Morning America and maybe you would be on The Tonight Show. And if like, listen, if when I was 18, I would have wanted that. I would have been like, bring me the opportunities, bring me the wardrobe bring me the tickets to this, bring me that. And of course, that's not an option for her. And yet the upside is to your point that she's in a space where she's really comfortable. And given that people have fallen in love with this character, you now get to see her in her own 
environment, so to speak, and it feels that much more easy and relaxed and people are falling in love with her even more. Yeah. And I think the inverse is true, right? Part of the point of those late night shows or morning shows is to introduce uh, a project to people who might not have known about it, right? Mm -hmm. So that if I didn't know about the show, then I see her on the Tonight Show or the Today Show or whatever. And I'm like, oh, maybe I'll watch it. If I don't react to her, if she has a bad day, if, as we were saying with others, she gets tired of answering the same question the 10th time in the same way, maybe I'm less likely to go and watch it. But as it is, all we have are 10 swaggy episodes of Never Have I Ever, followed by a bunch of swaggy interviews done from, you know, her mom's couch. Yeah. Uh, it And it's sort of, it's a bit of a no lose right now. Uh, and it also, I think, is preventing the inevitable overexposure, mm -hmm. right? That uh, the situation would otherwise be that a breakout star like this would be quick shunted into a quick movie to shoot and capitalize on things. And then while they wait for a season to pick up, which they will probably get. Uh, but as it is now, she's just sort of like, yeah, I'm chilling. And part of her press MO up to now has been uh, like, I don't want to live in LA forever. Like Toronto's my home. I want to go back home and live in Toronto. And she gets to kind of live it now and pace herself a little bit. And I think that that could be a good or a bad thing for a young actor. But when you're coming off a big performance like this, it's generally going to be great. Because if, as you say, never have I ever catches on with a second wave and a third wave, and I think it's shaping up that way, um, then people are going to have nothing to look on but excellence, which is, uh, you could do a lot worse for your first time out. You could do a lot worse than finding like a, like a diamond, like Maitreyi Ramakrishnan. Really impressive. Um, if we are being too hometown proud, uh, if you watched the show and you didn't like it, let us know. Although I think that uh, certainly there was a uh, friend wrote a review on Laney and other reviews have been out. I think a lot of people believe that the series itself really grows into itself mm -hmm. once it gets kind of off the onboarding ramp, just to mangle that metaphor. Uh, but as a whole, it's real, real, like solid and delightful. So I'm interested in what people who cannot spell Mississauga off the top of their heads think about how how the show is and how Maitreyi is. But again, like this is really exciting when someone emerges like this. We talked earlier in the conversation about Tracy Ellis Ross about emerging as something and um, Maitreyi Ramakrishnan carrying this and emerging as I love this quote, so I'll just repeat it again from you. Um, someone who doesn't break a sweat, or at least when you're watching her, doesn't break a sweat. It's really exciting. Like, we are in the presence of a possible new superstar. It's fucking awesome. It really is. I would also love to know how they went about shooting. Um, one thing that happens in... TV production is that some shows, if they have the opportunity, will not shoot the pilot first. It used to be, of course, you shoot the pilot uh, and then uh, people 
like it, it gets picked up or not. And then, you know, your second episode, sometimes people have different haircuts or whatnot. Uh, Once it's picked up and off they go and they have to get shows on the air. Uh, Now that shows are being produced as one 10 episode unit or similar, uh, it's often advantageous to put episode one somewhere in the middle of production so that the kinks come out. You start with maybe episode four or something where uh, if there are a couple of bumps in the road, the people who are still there by episode four will forgive you those bumps because they like what they've seen in one, two, and three. I'd love to know what they did with her or what the boot camp was. Uh, we've talked about, you know, Alexis Bledel was deeply green when she got on set. Uh, and I really would be curious about uh, what they did to sort of accommodate, not just Maitreyi, but I think a lot of the young actors were new-ish, if not as new as she was. So uh, I hope that story is one that comes out in wave two or three that uh, Mindy and her co-creator, Lang Fisher, talk about what it was that they decided to do to make this work. That would be the template for any time any time in the future where you do this fucking casting call and thousands of people are auditioned and then they beat out what however many thousands of people and then but if they're that green how you roll them in and this isn't taking anything away from my tree this is just i mean this is how it works right you the part of the work is finding the diamond and then setting the diamond up for success well that's i'm so glad that you said that because um This all came about, of course, because Mindy Kaling wasn't happy with the young South Asian actors that she was being sent. Uh, Probably the, you know, two to three that each agency represented as though that was enough. And the idea when that happens is, well, there's nobody else. There isn't anybody uh, meaning there isn't anybody else who has who has representation by one of the big agencies who's able to submit to your casting director, right? Mindy circumvented it by opening it up to everyone. And then, uh, look, I would have said it. Everybody would have said it. Really? You're going to rest your whole series on the back of an absolute newbie? On the back of a kid who doesn't know the difference between, you know, a mark and a and a clapper or something. And she did, and it worked, proving that the barriers to entry, which we have known forever are false, um, don't need to be barriers. There aren't even logical, oh, it's business, it's just the industry reasons why they need to exist. So, uh, you know, Mindy is quite... Uh, Mindy is quite rightly not smugging all over the place about that. She's just being gracious about the fact that people like the show, but she should be. She should be walking around going, I told you so. I told you that this could work. Crazy Rich Asians had a somewhat similar kind of conversation when they were casting, uh, especially I think around Henry Golding. Um, And yeah, it's only from their own grace that uh, the creators of both projects are not walking around going, told you. (laughs) So let us know your thoughts on Never Have I Ever and My Trey and this find. Um, Let us know your thoughts on Tracy Ellis Ross and definitely let us know your thoughts about music and playlists and songs. 
Um, until next time, thank you so much for listening and please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, leave comments and reviews. They help us so much. Thank you for loving work as much as we do. Keep it going. Keep talking to us and we'll see you next time. Bye. 